Hey y'all. So, in actually pretty typical me fashion, I thought I had time to talk about six black anthems of the 20th century this episode. But yeah, that was that wasn't going to happen. So instead, this episode is about the first three anthems in the book Anthem, Social Movements and the Sound of Solidarity in the African Diaspora by Professor Shana Redman, who hopefully will be back pretty soon to talk about the other three anthems in her book. Anyway, today we're talking about the music at the center of Black organizations and Black social movements in the 20th century, because taking the time to analyze the music of these movements really does add depth to our understanding of them. Let's go. So what does looking at the 20th century through anthems do for our understanding of the whole century? I think that looking at Black anthems in the 20th century gives us a sense of how Black people have differently created their relationship to the state, but more importantly, to the performativity of citizenship. I think we often think about citizenship as something that is conferred, that it is simply this rights-bearing paradigm that is only understood through legislation and policy, when in fact, we all perform our citizenship all the time. And it looks different for each person, case by case by case, but certainly by community. And so the work of Anthem, in part, is really trying to understand how Black people perform their citizenship and how they collectivize around a certain set of ideas and sounds that actually assists them in performing citizenship in ways that are meaningful to them. They may not always be recognized by the state, by even onlookers from the outside looking in, but for that community, they have already subscribed to a certain set of beliefs that are present in the music itself. And for them, that's a deeply, deeply meaningful, kind of curious, activist-oriented performance of who they are in the world. And they find a lot of themselves, but also solidarity in the performance of those songs. That's actually something that's come up on this show before, is the way that because Black people have never really gotten full acceptance into American citizenship, we're always looking for alternative ways to create and perform citizenship. And sometimes, yeah, I think that's true. I think sometimes it, it's not even called citizenship. Sometimes it's called identity. Sometimes it's called community. Sometimes it's called blackness. Sometimes it's called all of these other kind of categories of belonging. And I think part of my investment too was in really critiquing the citizenship model for inclusion, right? That Black people have created their own senses of being and belonging throughout the 20th century, that it comes with a whole sound world that if we listen more closely, we'll get closer to the kinds of, of performances of belonging that Black people subscribe to. And I think that that is really, really important considering the ongoing violences of the state, considering all of the ways in which citizenship is withheld and refused to people, right? If we think about the recent kind of beating back of refugees, Haitian refugees at the Texas border, right? That citizenship is, is meant to be understood as a privileged identity category, right? Which means that it's exclusive. Not everyone has equal access to citizenship. And so Black people have taken from 
from that model different kinds of belonging that do not rely on the rights of the state, but create very localized or sometimes international diasporic senses of how we belong to each other, regardless of the nation in which we exist or in which we live. So I think those models are really important because we have to consistently look for alternatives because the citizenship model is just too narrow as it's practiced by the state. And anthems as a way of citizenship also just makes a lot of sense because every country does have anthems. Music is part of identity and like nationalism. And it's actually super relevant to the first song that you talk about in the book, because Ethiopia, you mentioned in the book that it actually was adopted as an anthem not that many years after the Star Spangled Banner was adopted as America's anthem. Well, it was actually adopted before, before the yeah. Star-Spangled Banner was adopted as the national anthem. So Ethiopia, the land of our fathers, was the movement anthem for the Universal Negro Improvement Association, which was at that point the largest mass movement of African-descended peoples in the United States. And so it had this spectacular reach and culture was one of the mechanisms by which people knew about the organization and decided to be curious about or join the organization. And so Marcus Garvey being kind of the prophetic, thoughtful person that he was, tasked two of his members with writing an anthem for the organization. And this was unlike some other organization anthems that I study in the book. Garvey was had enough foresight to actually argue that the UNIA, but writ large, the African nation, which he saw as a diasporic enterprise, needed the same types of symbols that were hailing citizens in kind of formal nation states. So we needed a flag, we needed an anthem, we need all of those symbols to actually unify us across the diaspora. And it was an incredibly brilliant maneuver. And there's a reason it was the first song in the book, not only because it was adopted first, it was adopted in 1918, but because it becomes the model for various other movement organizations later on in the 20th century, that people look at the Universal Negro Improvement Association and say, they were onto something. So let's just mirror what they've done as a means of recruiting members and set that as our precedent. So Garvey's UNIA was really, really foundational to thinking about how movement organizations in the Black world would organize themselves later on in the 20th century, and Ethiopia becomes one of those standards. So you were talking about the UNIA was very focused on building nationhood through symbolism, and just Black nationalism is a huge theme that really sets the UNIA apart from the other moments in the book. So yeah, I do want to focus in on like Black nationalism within the UNIA. Yeah, so the UNIA, again, in its capaciousness, actually was interested in contending with the rest of the global world powers. And so they conceived of themselves as a single nation across location, throughout the African world, across culture, across language, right? So the Negro world was the kind of press organ of the UNIA. It was translated into Spanish. It was translated into French. They had circulation all throughout the African world. And it was important for them to be sharing a similar message so that they could 
kind of solicit the same types of subscription from people around the world, right? That we all see each other similarly. If you understand yourself as oppressed by your nation state and as part of the African race, come join the UNIA. We're going to give you a flag, a song. We're going to give you the opportunity to join the African Legion, which was kind of the military wing of the UNIA. So because it was interested in nation building and practice a particular kind of Black nationalist sentiment and rhetorics, they were instituting various other kinds of forms of organization within the UNIA as a means of then presenting to Black people first, but then also to the rest of the world, the fact that this nation was in the game that we were here to actually take up space. We would not be stepped on. If you have a problem with Black folks, you're going to answer to the entire nation. So they had the military wing. They had the Black Cross Nurses, which was the women's organization that was interested in teaching ideas about hygiene and thrift, but also being medically trained in order to care for Black people. In addition to kind of the nationalist symbols, Garvey was building factories and the Black Star Line, which was a shipping enterprise, so that they could be economically independent, which was a big part and still remains a big part of Black nationalist sentiment and practice, right? Economic independence. And all of this, of course, is about self-determination, that we're able to tell our own stories, to care for our own people, to actually establish ourselves as independent of all of these state bodies, which are deeply and to their core settler colonial, occupying nations, right? All of these countries in Africa. And Garvey's, one of his big things was let Africa be free, right? Africa for Africans. So he was interested in actually mobilizing these formations, the Legion and these other organizations within the UNIA to free and then otherwise send Black peoples back to Africa. And so being able to contend with Britain and the United States and be in the same room as all of these nations in negotiation of world politics was super important to him. So he built an infrastructure that would actually compel these nations to either come to the table willingly or to tremble with fear. Yeah, the militaristic aspect of the organization is Super interesting. You even talk about to the song Ethiopia, there's like a very masculine kind of militant language. Yes, absolutely. So the composition of the song, which was written by two male members of the UNIA, both of whom were immigrants to New York of Caribbean descent, was very much meant to kind of bolster the step and kind of sense of pride amongst the membership but was very reflective of Garvey's increasing investment and insistence on an organized kind of paramilitary apparatus within the UNIA. So it's insisting in the language of the song, advance, advance, let Africa be free, right? Advance, advance being a military strategy, right? That we are coming back to retake the lands that have been stolen from us, right? And the voicing within the song, and part of my argument, as you mentioned, is really about the masculinist elements of the song, which are not just about the lyrics, but is also about the voice leading, that in the four-part harmony, even as it's inclusive of women's voices, it's always the men who lead the line. The men will sing solo, the bass, baritone, and tenor lines will lead 
together before women join in four-part harmony. So it was already training this African world to believe that men are at the forefront. Men are always the ones leading the way and that women are integral. We're important to the story, but our best position is behind men. Yeah, that did happen. You talk about that it also bolsters the idea of one God, one aim, one destiny. That's like a big deal within the UNIA. And I do want to address that. Yeah, so that was one of the major kind of turns of phrase within the UNIA. And it was something that was repeated in many of their opening ceremonies for the organization. And this was part of the ways in which the song and the broader kind of pantheon of symbols within the UNIA became uh, so readily identifiable with the organization was that they were repeated with every session of the UNIA, every local chapter, certainly all of the big convocations that were happening during Black August, which was a month-long effort to recruit all the members of the UNIA to a singular location and celebration and study with one another. But One God, One Aim, One Destiny, that was really centrally configured within Garvey's rhetoric, right? Was that, again, we are one people. And of course, it's difficult to make these kinds of arguments, one aim, one destiny, but certainly one God, as we think about the diaspora, right? We are many, many different kinds of people. Some of us are polytheistic. And so it it was an incredible feat for him to have insisted upon that singularity, but it really was in service of identifying a singular, still amorphous, still vibrating with difference we, right? He was urgently pursuing we. How do we identify us? And so all of these practices that he built into the organization was meant through its repetition, just like any other nationalism. The repetition was meant to insist upon this sense of identification with the people singing next to you, the people hailing the red, black, and green next to you. It was meant to cohere us in a way that without those symbols may have been more contentious and more difficult. So there are both shortcomings to this program, as I discuss throughout the book, but certainly in the UNIA chapter, but also some really formative, long-lasting investments that developed out of this program of unification as well. This is really interesting how music is at the center of the nation building within the UNIA, the way that the songs played so much into solidarity and identifying with people across the world. I mean, to the extent that in addition to the anthem, the UNIA had their own hymnal, right? And this too was part of the one God investment, right? Was that we're all singing the same kinds of liturgical songs. It was church for these people, right? And Garvey was often the preacher. Music played a a super, super formative role in the organization. And at the point at which I was working on this project as my dissertation, there just was hardly anything written about the musical agenda of the UNIA. And so I thought it really, really crucial, actually, in studying this fantastic, spectacular organization that we know something about the music because it became so much of the language that Garvey used so much of the language that people still remember about having participated in the UNIA still to this day. So Garvey was deported. That's the doubtful of the UNIA. He was so he was such a central figure to 
the whole organization that it really kind of fell apart after Garvey was deported for being radical. That's what America does. We like taking people's passports or deporting them. That's the thing that happens a lot. Yep. Even actually with some of these other songs. Anyway, so as the UNIA fell apart, the NAACP stepped in and Black nationalism was not their agenda. Let's start with just how the agenda of the NAACP was different than the UNIA. Yeah, so the NAACP is an older organization than the UNIA. It was actually founded in 1909, and it was always explicitly an interracial organization. It was founded by Du Bois and Joel Spingarn and Mary White Ovington, these white liberals and Black race men, primarily, many of whom were intellectuals as well as kind of leader figures within various Black communities, and was always intended to be interracial. So Black nationalism was never the language that was used by those early adherents to the organization, certainly not the founders. And the NAACP actually struggled to build membership beyond kind of an elite base for quite some time. And it was only in the middle 19-teens and into the 1920s when James Weldon Johnson came on as the field secretary for the organization that it began to really work to build a broader base of support amongst Black folks. And part of the way that they were able to do that was the kind of dismantling the active destruction of the UNIA, right, with the deportation of Marcus Garvey, the deportation of other leaders within the organization, which began to starve resources for the locals that were running all over the country and all over the world. And without kind of that charismatic leader, because he had made himself so central, the organization within a decade did pretty much fade from public thought and knowledge. So the NAACP understood, well, there are organization-less members out in this world, right? And they weren't necessarily specifically targeting UNIA members, in part because there had already been some growing antagonisms between Garvey and Du Bois, for example. Du Bois, an early member and founder of the NAACP, that they would write to each other in the press and talk about each other in some really nasty ways, actually, before Garvey's deportation. So there was already antagonism there. So the NAACP wasn't necessarily looking for UNIA members because they already knew that there were going to be some fundamental differences of perspective and investment. But at the same time, because they, the UNIA failed to have its mass broad base of support, there was an opportunity there. So in the 1920s, the NAACP sent James Weldon Johnson out into the South to do some recruitment as field secretary and to ha start having conversations with people in ways that the organization had not been doing up until that point. It just so happened that James Weldon Johnson was also the librettist or the kind of text author of Lift Every Voice and Sing which the organization had in 1921 started to pursue as its possible hymn. So 
the language of him is the one that the NAACP used in its effort to find a song that would brand the organization. This is, again, I think, very much in recognition of Ethiopia and the UNIA, right, that they knew they also needed some kind of unifying text, some kind of unifying performance that would draw membership into the organization. And in 1921, they tasked a small committee with seeking that song. And James Weldon Johnson was on that committee. So how Lift Every Voice and Sing came into circulation as a possible option is pretty clear, right? That he was probably putting it on the table. So he had written it with his brother, J. Rosamond Johnson, in 1899. And so the song already by that point was 20 years old, but it had circulated very, very widely in the U.S. South, being taught in segregated schools and segregated churches and being carried orally by family traditions and other word of mouth. So by the time James Weldon is hired by the NAACP and goes south to recruit membership, people already know him because they know his song. And this is before it is taken up as kind of the robust anthem of the NAACP. And so people are interested to meet him because they know that song. They know something of him potentially as having been a popular music composer as well, which he did before joining the NAACP. He worked on Black Broadway for a while with his brother and George Walker. So, you know, he had already built some familiarity with people and they were curious about him and by that extension, then curious about the NAACP. So it was a very shrewd, smart move on the part of the NAACP to choose Lift Every Voice and Sing as their song because Black people were already singing it before it was adopted. Now, I want to talk about uplift culture because that's kind of part of the NAACP's platform and even plays into the song, Lift Every Voice and Sing. Yeah, so uplift culture is a practice that was being kind of worked through, but definitely calcified in this moment of the post-World War I moment after 1914, when Black people, many of whom had served in the World War, were differently invested in demands for citizenship, right? That this was almost two generations after the abolition of slavery. They had fought in World War I. Black communities were economically contributory to many of the industrial centers of the United States, right? After these migration patterns that were moving people out of the rural agricultural areas of the U.S. South into these booming industrial meccas like Detroit with auto production and Chicago with meat production and packing, all of these things, Black people are contributing mightily to the wartime economy and the post-war economy. And so they're demanding certain things, right? They're demanding that their rights be met, that their humanity be understood and considered as part of this broad, capacious category of citizen and that their rights be respected. And in this moment, part of the strategy amongst a certain section of the Black community in order to achieve those rights was really around these uplift cultures, right, which were centered around a certain sense of middle class aspiration, education as a means of that aspiration, but also of matching wits with white communities, right, a certain type of articulation of self, that cleanliness was super important, that being pious was super important, which meant that that continuing relationships to organized religion and things such as that, marriage, 
children only within marriage, right? That these respectability politics were really, really significant for thinking about uplift cultures. Uplift being both a relationship between Black communities and white-dominating communities, but also between Black people as well, right? That we were meant to encourage one another to become fit for inclusion in the body politic, which meant that sometimes we had to chastise our neighbor. Sometimes we had to pull people along with us. This is part two of the legacy of Booker T. Washington, lift yourself up by your bootstraps, right? Work hard, industrious thrift, and we will succeed as a people. So these uplift cultures were really, really central to the NAACP, again, an interracial organization. So if they are going to be in close cahoots with white people, if if Black people are going to curry the favor of the good white folks in our bids toward inclusion, then we were going to have to act right. And this is kind of the bottom line of respectability politics is that we have to act right. And acting right, of course, is very, very narrow and is disciplinary and is a one size fits all that is just impossible to achieve, but something that was kind of rigidly pounded into the hearts and minds of Black people through various institutions educational systems, churches, and religious organizations, and certainly the NAACP as well. And there's a way that you tie it to the song, Lift Every Voice and Sing, as it's an artistically like excellent song. And that was part of lifting Black people up, because this was like one of the times of some of the like worst race relations, like so much violence, so much disenfranchisement. And this song itself was part of like uplift through that. Absolutely. Yeah. So the red summers of 1919, right, where there were a ton of large scale racial antagonisms in which black folks were massacred in just tremendous numbers after the end of World War One. Right. Again, as these soldiers are returning home, as women are looking for their partners and brothers and fathers to return home, that there was all of this racial antagonism that just resulted in weeks and weeks and weeks of carnage for Black communities at the hands of white state bodies, as well as vigilantes, right? That the police were involved, the Klan were involved, they were all in cahoots with one another. And so, you know, this moment of the early 1920s where Johnson is trying to go through the South and do this work, this moment when the NAACP is looking for the song that's going to brand the organization, a lot of that is still in everyone's minds. But in response to those things, the NAACP position was not to take up arms, right, as it was for Garvey or as it was for other Black organizations. Their agenda was to actually prove the humanity of Black people by being truly upstanding, perfect citizens, right, that we were making certain kinds of overtures to being read as human, as citizens, Um, And we had to act accordingly and Lift Every Voice and Sing becomes one of those efforts in the arts realm because it is written in a very clearly understandable Western way, right? Four-part harmony. Jay Rosamond was a trained musician having studied at Boston Conservatory. And it was not driven by drum, right? All of these things that might have suggested 
an African-derived musical form. It wasn't the blues, which was the popular music in the 1920s, right? We think about this classic blues period as modeled by people like Ma Rainey and Bessie Smith, right? It didn't sound like the blues at all. It was the farthest thing, perhaps, a Black person could have written from the blues. And so already in selection of this song, they were establishing a very clear kind of sentiment around listening practices and artistic practices amongst their community, certainly amongst their leadership. So Lift Every Voice and Sing does a lot of work, not only for branding the organization, but very strategically for training its performers to live and think in a particular kind of way. And this is what all of the anthems are meant to do, right? That they're meant to not only elicit a certain type of pride and hopefulness amongst its performers, but also to discipline in a particular kind of way, to actually encourage people to believe the same things. And some of those things like uplift cultures are double-edged swords. Definitely. Now, I definitely would not have thought about this before encountering your book, but apparent, but to talk about literary voice and sing, we actually have to talk about Japan, which is wild. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, that was actually the first bit of evidence that I found as I was writing my dissertation was this correspondence between James Weldon Johnson and an immigrant to New York City named Yasuichi Hakita, who wanted to translate Lift Every Voice and Sing into Japanese. And this is the early 1930s. So by this point, it was already being widely used by the NAACP. And that's actually where Hakita encounters it. He attends an event hosted by the NAACP in New York City, and the song is sung as kind of preface to the day's events, which became the standard practice. It was sung either at the beginning of the meeting or event or at the close of the meeting or event, or sometimes both beginning and end. And that's where Hikita encountered it. And Hikita was already thinking about his return to Japan and what that return needed to accomplish. And as World War II starts to escalate, as hostilities start to develop uh, between the Axis powers, I don't have perfect language from Hikita or people writing about him, about his intentions for the song, but it's very clear in his correspondence with Johnson that his goal is actually to draw Black people closer to the Japanese. And that he sees us, he sees Black folks, Asian folks, as the global majority, that we are all the same people and we need to be unified against white enemies. And he uses Lift Every Voice and Sing and its translation as a means of both introducing Black folks in Japan, because the song is ultimately translated and published in a Japanese journal, but also allowing the possibility that any Black folks who go to Japan, whether it be for military service or otherwise, will hear their sound when they land, right? And this is something that he speaks a little bit about in his correspondence, right? Like, this is the way we want to welcome Black people to Japan, is by singing Lift Every Voice and Sing. So it was a really fantastic moment for thinking about the reach of these songs, right? That we often think about the anthem as nationally bounded, that it only belongs to a certain country. But in the case of Black anthems, 
overwhelmingly, these are transnational anthems, right? Because we're always identifying ourselves as part of a diaspora. So it has to exceed the nation state. It has to be accessible to people, not only in other African world countries, but also other dispossessed or marginalized global majority peoples, including Japan. That was wildly interesting that Japan, that even you expressed that at this point in time, Black Americans had a very favorable opinion of Japan because they saw it as like a great non-white power fighting against white supremacy in the world. Right. Japan had had a fantastic number of successes with their military in fighting off colonialism. They also, though, had had a lot of success in invading other East Asian countries, which, you know, was not part of the conversation or was not an ample part of the conversation. And so even that perspective, which was forwarded by people like Du Bois, right, Du Bois had a very favorable opinion of Japan in this moment, in part because we needed those examples. We needed to see other global majority peoples kicking ass. Like we needed to see those things. And so it did build this favorability amongst Black intellectuals and and travelers. But at the same time, there were all of these other imperialist schemes that Japan was enacting in China, in Korea, that people were not talking about, at least not publicly, right? And so it was, again, a really tension-riddled alliance but one that up until this moment and up until World War II really was quite favorable between Black folks and the Japanese. So interesting. After you get to like uplift culture and lift every voice and sing in the NAACP, the next song is Old Man River. And it wasn't really championed by an organization. It was really championed by just one man, Paul Robeson. But just to build the context of the song, it came from a musical called Showboat. Old Man River is a song that was composed by Oscar Hammerstein and Jerome Kern, and it was written originally for Robeson. Robeson, who was building his kind of artistic presence and portfolio in New York City, was the muse for Jerome Kern, who wrote the music for the song for the original Showboat, which is a musical about a showboat, which holds and hosts a number of entertainment workers as it travels down the Mississippi River, stopping along the way to perform for various communities. And Robeson uh, was ultimately to play Joe, which was one of the characters on the showboat. He was not an entertainer on the showboat. He was a manual laborer. He and his wife made the meals and fixed the boat and did all of the manual labor for all of the white entertainers on the showboat. But it just so happens that they have these fantastic voices, right? That the Negroes on the boat sing all of the time and teach the other members of the boat, especially the captain's daughter, She learns a lot of her stage persona and some of her kind of musical numbers from Joe and Queenie, the two Black characters on the showboat who are simply laborers but have these fantastic voices. Anyway, that character of Joe was written for Robeson originally. He was the inspiration for that role. He was the inspiration for the song, which originally was the only song that Joe performed in the musical. And Robeson, in being offered the role, declined it initially in the late 1920s. 
um, because he was already doing a lot of other things. 1925, he kind of booms in the art scene in New York City, having been discovered as this incredible voice and purveyor of the Negro spirituals. But by 1927, the show is moving to London and he's offered the role again. And he agrees to take the role. He moves to London to perform the role of Joe on stage. And because of his increasing uh, star power, they extend the number of times he sings Old Man River in the show in 1927. It has reprise after reprise within the musical because they want him on stage as much as possible because he's drawing all of these fans and audiences to the performance. Um, And by the end of that run, it's so widely associated with him that he starts to perform it in his solo concerts. And from there on out, it's the song he sings for the rest of his life. Yeah, it starts on stage as part of a musical, but then it becomes a song that's like so associated with him that it becomes his song. Right. But the song on stage that's like originally written for this musical showboat, when he takes it up as his own song, he changes it. That's really what makes it into an anthem is the way that he owns it to change the message. So, yeah, I want to talk about how he changed the song. Yeah. So as he moves to London in 1927, he starts to do these individual concert tours with his longtime accompanist, Lawrence Brown, who was also an ethnomusicologist, was very well versed in Black folk cultures and started to assist Robeson, train him even in both reading musics and thinking about global musical forms and how Black people fit into global musical forms, but also assisting him in curating a different kind of repertoire. And he becomes uh, most known for his work with the Negro spirituals. And so he's doing these concert tours and decides by the late 20s, early 30s, that England is where he wants to be. And he's there for almost a decade At the same time as he's there doing concerts and starring in smaller stage plays, he plays John Henry in a play in London in the 1930s, all of these things. He's building relationships with Black radicals from throughout the diaspora. So he meets and befriends Kwame Nkrumah who goes on to lead the independence movement in Ghana. He meets Jomo Kenyatta, who goes on to lead the independence movement in Kenya. He meets CLR James, who's a radical Trinidadian Marxist socialist. So he is studying music, but he's also studying world politics and cultures. And it's in the 1930s in London that he begins to identify as an African rather than an African-American, even as he's very clear about his relationship to the United States, to the sweat and labor that his people performed in order to build this country, he starts to identify as an African based on those relationships, largely with West African radicals. And he decides that because of this burgeoning political consciousness, because he now knows himself differently, he's an African, he is not defined by any nation state, he's a cosmopolitan subject, but in the best, most radical sense, he decides that showboat, as it was originally conceived, which begins with the line, niggers all work on the Mississippi, niggers all work while the white folks play, he decides that the song is no longer acceptable to him in the form it was received. 
he starts to change the song and he changes it in a whole host of ways over the early stages of this moment in the 1930s, especially in the transition into the 1940s when he's returning to the United States because Showboat has continued to be performed at a highly successful rate, even without him as the star. And so more and more people know the song. And so when he sings it, as he's always expected to do, they're now especially attuned to the lyricism. And he starts to change the words, not only losing the language of niggers, losing then the language of colored, but also adding anti-war elements as World War II starts to escalate as well, because he was a radical peace activist as well. So he makes this song his over the course of the 40 years in which he sung it, literally singing it for 40 years and becoming so profoundly central to its articulation that it can't exist on the musical stage in the same way anymore. Hammerstein had to consistently change the lyrics of the song because Paul was in the world singing it in a way that was radically different than how people were hearing it on the musical stage, right? That he forced the composer to change the song through his own articulations and and revisions to the piece over time. Um, So some of the inclusions, the most profound inclusion was around who the Old Man River character was, right? The Old Man character in the song, the original, is conceived of as a pitiful and desperate kind of person, right? He sees the whole world pass him by, just resigned to being passed by, to being pre-modern, to being unhelpful, to being pathetic, Robeson changes the lyrics. There's an old man called the Mississippi. That's the old man that I'd like to be is the original language, right? This kind of passive, uncaring, unthoughtful kind of character. Robeson says, that's the old man I don't like to be, right? This is the most consistent adjustment he makes, right? He doesn't want to be the apathetic kind of bypassed onlooker. He wants to be the person in the fight, in the fray. And so he continues to make all of these adjustments and it becomes radically his in a way that I can't even find a comparison for, right? Because he sung it so long and he made it one that was entirely his own, that it is now only known as his song, really, right? Anyone who sings it in Showboat, even today, has to acknowledge Paul Robeson in some form or fashion. That's how much it became a part of his DNA, And so because of that, and because of his presence with African decolonial radicals, because of his presence in particular for world working class and labor organizations, right, he becomes the kind of troubadour for thinking about the collision of decoloniality, labor rights, and radical peace activism. And all of these organizations are begging him, come sing for us, come sing for us, come sing for us. And he always does, and he always sings Old Man River. And so it becomes this laboring anthem known throughout the world and intimately tied to this singular individual. Yes. Ooh, it's so interesting. But one of the, ooh, and one of the most interesting parts of the chapter is that Eventually, Robeson comes back to America. He gets his passport revoked so he can no longer travel abroad because he has all these radical views. America sees that he has a lot of power, so they trap him in America. And there's this part where he wants to do some performing in Canada and he's not allowed to go to Canada. So there's this huge concert on the border. It was such a good part of the book. 
Yeah. So, you know, this is a story that I don't think we take seriously enough, certainly not in the pre 9-11 world. I think in the post 9-11 world, this incident makes more sense to us. We can kind of understand it a little bit better. But pre 9-11, these types of stories, I think, were just anathema to how people understood U.S. citizenship. But in 1950, the U.S. State Department revokes Paul Robeson's passport. He is no longer allowed to travel because he's effectively seen as an enemy of the state. Because they recognize his incredible capacity to build movements, to speak to people all over the world, the fact that he's constantly being hailed and invited to come back, come sing for these radical organizations, to sing at the opening of kind of political events for decolonizing nations, because he speaks more than 12 languages, right? They see his travel throughout the world as a radical interference with their imperialist policy and decide that he needs to be detained, contained in the United States. As this is happening, he's already established that he is meant to sing for this union in Canada. They've already invited him to come. And at this moment in the early 1950s, no passport was required to travel into Canada. But as his envoy approaches the border in order to cross over so that he can go sing for these workers, he is detained at the border and they do not allow him to pass. And this becomes a moment of incredible strategizing and ingenuity, both on the part of Robeson and on the part of the union. They decide that they are going to stage a concert at the border between Washington State in the United States and British Columbia on the Canadian side of the border. And he is going to literally sing over the border in concert to the workers and other adoring fans. And estimates on the Canadian side of the border are upwards of 30,000 people in attendance in order to hear him sing across the border. And so it's this fantastic moment of him defying the U.S. State Department, right? Very, very publicly defying the U.S. State Department, but also recognizing the currency and capacity of music, right? That he was going to be able to draw all of these people. He was going to make a spectacle of the U.S. State Department because he could draw that many people, but also recognizing that he needed to continue speaking, that the end of his ability to travel was not going to be the end of his career. And so he sings over the border, recognizing that it is imaginary, right? All borders are imaginary. He sings across it, sings through it, demolishes it with his singular voice, right? And it becomes this incredible Peace Arch concert that happens in 1951. And then again, in the middle part of the decade as well, when they call him back as he's still fighting to regain his right to travel. That part is just incredible, singing over the border. Then, so he sings over the border, and then he begins to record his music, which is the other way that he becomes like an international name. Just, yeah, the second you record music, it can be anywhere in the world. And there are times when his recorded music just kind of substitutes in for him opening or closing a big political event somewhere else in the world. 
Right. So he already had a very illustrious recording career prior to his blacklisting with Columbia and Atlantic and all of these super conglomerates that were seeking out his voice. And he was doing very, very well. But with his blacklisting in 1949 and 1950, he lost all his recording contracts. He lost all of his major concert hall appearances and his his income decreased by 95 percent over the course of two years because of the anti-communist hysterics that had thrown the nation and the world into a tizzy. And so he starts Othello Records, which is a do-it-yourself project that he launches in New York City with his son, Paul Jr., who had an engineering background. And they recorded a limited number of pressings of him singing to send all over the world. And one of the recordings that he sent was a recording in 1955 to the Bandung Conference in Indonesia, which was the Conference of Non-Aligned States, which was a gathering of black and brown nations around the world, many of whom were currently fighting colonialism, working towards their independence moments, and they wanted to gather outside of either communist or capitalist interference and just have conversation with each other so that they could strategize a platform of solidarity. U.S. leaders were not invited to the Bandung Conference because they did not want the static of capitalist influence. They did not want U.S. imperialist agendas on the table. The only Americans who were explicitly invited to partake in and kind of set the agenda for those meetings to participate as official members of the proceedings were W.E.B. Du Bois and Paul Robeson. And by this point, both of their passports had been revoked, both due to suspicion of communist activity, or at least that was the official language, right? But in fact, they both were enemies of the state for their ability to organize people around the world against U.S. and other Western imperialisms and racisms. So in lieu of attendance, because he could not physically be there, Robeson sent a recording of three songs, which included Old Man River, And it played in the hall at the Bandung proceedings and was his proxy. It was his body in that space because as a vocalist, when we hear someone's voice, what we're hearing are their lungs and their diaphragm and their chest cavity and their throat. So all of those pieces of him were already in the Bandung conference and became his offering and ability to speak with those people with whom he was radically engaged and mentoring and subservient to. So good. So there are six songs in the book and we only got through the first three. So hopefully I'm going to try to arrange a part two of this because there are so many other really cool songs to talk about. We only really got through the first half of the 20th century. There's so much more. Music really does add a new dimension to looking at these movements, to looking at solidarity because of the way they traverse internationally, and even to understand the messages and foundations of these organizations. They come through so vividly through this music. So thank you so much for coming on my show. Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me. So keep an eye out for part two, which I'll have to you as soon as I can schedule a second interview with Professor Redmond, because we got to talk about We Shall Overcome. Keep an eye out for that. Keep telling everyone you know about this show. And don't forget to follow me on social media. It's at We The Black People Pod on Facebook and Instagram and at We The Black Pod on Twitter. 
All power to all people, y'all.